Arthur Machen once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. Ancient chroniclers routinely labeled poltergeists as devils or demons. The infernal nature attributed to these ghosts is perhaps unsurprising, given the dramatic phenomena in which they engage and their often aggressive actions. In addition, the tendency of poltergeists to afflict either priests or at least those of a devoutly religious temperament likely also contributed to the identification of their activities as infestations of demons, or daemonum vexation in ecclesiastical terminology. Interestingly, the tendency of poltergeists to bedevil men of faith continues into the present day. Many are the tales of poltergeist hauntings in the homes of clergymen. In fact, as will become evident as this article continues, the descriptions of poltergeist activity in even these ancient accounts is remarkably consistent with types of actions reported today. The ancient Babylonians believed in evil spirits known as Ikimu, which were free-roaming ghosts of the unburied dead. Ikimu would attach themselves to a person who ventured into the area where its body lay, causing all, all sorts of misfortune. A priest could attempt to dislodge the Ikimu from its victim and send the unhappy spirit to the underworld, but if he failed, the spirit would surely return and seek out some individual with whom it formed a connection. This connection could be as simple as sharing clothing, food, or drink, or even having simply been kind to the Akimu in its lifetime. Once in a home, the ghost was a terror, sometimes merely making unintelligible sound, sometimes mocking the people who dwelt in the house, and sometimes asking questions of them. The ones who dwelt there began experiencing bad luck, and usually the house would be destroyed. Often, one or more inhabitants would die. Usually referred to in the modern day as vampires, on the contrary, the Akimu seems to be more similar to a poltergeist in nature. The earliest known accounts, seemingly making reference to poltergeist activity, were made by the Roman author Livy, or Titus Livius, as his actual name was, in his Ab Urbe Condita Libri, a multi-volume history of Roman civilization, both the Republic and the Empire. He composed this book between 32 BC and the early years of the eight of AD. In that book, he states, At Praenesta, which is modern Palestrina, burning stones fell from the sky. And also, he records, At Anium, which is modern Anzio, while people were reaping, ears of corn stained with blood fell from the sky. It's unclear if the first event Livy refers to as a typical poltergeist shower of stones, which are sometimes heated, or a normal meteor shower, but the second event definitely seems to be a poltergeist event, as corn cobs are one of the more common items thrown by poltergeists. 
Another reference was made in the 5th century AD by a French priest named Constantius of Lyon, also recorded as Constance de Lyon. In his Vita Sancti Germani, he describes an, an incident from the life of Saint Germain. It seems that while Germain, who was only Bishop of Auxerre at that point, was traveling one evening, he and his companions stopped for the night, setting up camp in an old ruined house, despite warnings from locals that the home was haunted. While the others slept, one of Germain's attendants stayed awake, and it was this priest who encountered a ghostly visitation. A horrifying shade appeared before him, while the walls were struck by a hail of stones. The priest awoke Germain for aid, and the bishop commanded the spirit to speak, and to reveal its name and purpose. The specter told Germain that it was one of the unburied dead, or insepulti. In life, it and some compatriots had been criminals, and now lay unburied and unable to rest. Germain told the spirit to show him where its body was, and it did. The next day, he and the other priests dug through some rubble and found the corpses spread out every which way, bound in chains. The priests unchained the skeletons, wrapped them in shrouds, and gave them proper funerals, and thus the hauntings were dispelled. Some, among them Dom Augustine Calme and his famous and off-quoted book on the unquiet dead, have argued that Delion's tale is only a legend, an improvement on the earliest known supposedly true ghost story, recorded in the 1st century AD by Roman author Pliny the Younger. Pliny wrote in a letter of a certain house in Athens which was reported to be haunted by the sound of invisible chains clanking. Some years later, a philosopher named Athena Doris took up resident in the haunted house. One night, he heard the rattling chains and looked up to see the figure of an old man, who beckoned to him and indicated a certain spot in the yard of the house. Digging at this spot, Athena Doris discovered a chained and bound skeleton, and when this skeleton was given the proper burial rites, the haunting ceased. Although this tale has elements of a traditional apparitional ghost, the auditory phenomena make it arguably an, an early poltergeist as well, albeit one that seems certainly more benign than most. Around the same time as the St. Germain story, the Haggaiography, or Biography of a Saint, Vita Caesare Episcopi Aurelitensis, was written by St. Cyprian. He reported that, the doc that a doctor named Helpidius was frequently assailed by a shower of rocks in his own house. Cyprian's teacher, St. Caesarius, was summoned to aid Hel Helpidius in dispelling what were of course seen as demons. He sprinkled holy water in the house, and the doctor was freed from dangerous periods of harassment. A second event took place in a region called Sexentriones, where there was a great ruined bathhouse that nearby inhabitants believed to be haunted. Passersby would hear their names called, and some even had to dodge falling stones. Caesarius once visited the site, but was called to another church. Then, confessed Messianus, the cleric whose responsibility it was to carry his staff forgot it. This was the duty of his notaries, in which capacity my useless self was serving. When the inhabitants of the place found it, they joyfully proclaimed that it had been furnished to them by their lord, so that they could find something belonging to them. 
They were amazed and thanked God and hung the staff from the wall. And immediately the devil's snare was put to flight. And until the present, the adversary has not dared to inflict any wicked evil on anyone in that place. Another poltergeist exorcism was recorded a century later by a Byzantine monk named Georgios or Eleusios, a disciple of St. Theodore of, of Sycion. Chapter 44 of Georgios' Hagiography of St. Theodore details how the saint traveled to a Christian church in Heraclea Ponica, which is modern-day Ereglia in northwestern Turkey. And while he was there, he was summoned to the household of a local magistrate named Theodoros Latsius, whose house was assailed by what was referred to as a daemonum vexation, or infestation of demons. The phenomena in Latsius's home ranged from the snapping of threads on looms to showers of stones afflicting his family as they ate. Huge numbers of snakes and mice infecting the home, infesting the home were also seen as manifestations of the demonic forces. The Latsius home was finally freed after St. Theodore thang- sang psalms and sprinkled holy water. Sometime around 795, another hagiography, the Vita Sancti Willibrordi, was penned by the Carolingian scholar Alcuin, favored of Charlemagne and the abbot of Tours. St. Willibrord had died 60 years previous, and it is assumed that Alcuin's text draws on an earlier British account. This account told of a house, its whereabouts unfortunately are not mentioned, where there was what appeared to be a poltergeist. The account is the early, earliest mention of another typically poltergeist activity, fire starting. Quite without warning, it used to snatch and carry off food and clothing and other household furniture and throw them into the fire. Indeed, it also picked up a small child which was sleeping between its parents and threw him on the fire as well. But the child's howl of pain woke up the parents who were able to extract it from the fire. After all valuables had been extracted from the house under the instruction of St. Willibrord, the house caught fire and burned to the ground. This example is notable among the hagiographical accounts, as the saint was able to only minimize the damage, failing to exorcise the spirit. Another Swiss monk, known as Notker the Stammerer, wrote a book called De Carolo Magno, a biography of Charlemagne. He describes how sometime around 800, a demon, which named itself variously, took up residence in a blacksmith's shop, playing with his hammers, tongs, and other tools at night, and making frightful pounding noises. Priests came to the shop, brandishing crucifixes and holy water. As a result, the demon was seized and imprisoned. The words Notker uses for this spirit in the original Latin may reflect a, con- a confusion about what it was. The words applied variously to demons, ghosts, and genius loci, or spirits of place. An account of a spirit which exhibits several of the poltergeist traits, stone throwing, fire starting, speaking, and singling out of one person for persecution, appeared in a non-ecclesiastical source, the Annals Fuldensis, or, or Annals of Fulda. In 858, a spirit appeared in the town of Bingen, Germany. Camerarius re- recounts the event in his Aventinus Refert Historium, 
and says it took place in a town called Canmuz. First, it threw stones and knocked against the house walls as if it were using a hammer, and thus proved highly disturbing to the people living there. Then it began to, st- to speak clearly and stealthily reveal to certain individuals things it had stolen, after which it started to foment quarrels among the local inhabitants. Finally, it roused everyone's feeling against one man. Whenever this man entered any house, the malign spirit immediately burned it down. Therefore, of necessity, the man and his wife and children were forced to live out of doors in his fields because all his neighbors were afraid to receive him under the roof. But he was not allowed to remain there in safety because once he had gathered all his crops and stacked them together, the scoundrelly spirit came along and without warning set the lot on fire. Priests from mines arrived and attempted to exorcise the spirit, which began to throw stones and drew blood from several inhabitants, presumably striking them. But once those who had been sent for left, this same enemy uttered doleful words to many people who heard him, and designating a particular priest by name, claimed he had been under his cap at the very time holy water was being sprinkled in the house. To those crossing themselves out of fear, the spirit said, He is my very own slave, and anyone who is surpassed by him in his wickedness is his slave too. Because not long long ago, at my suggestion, he slept with the daughter of the proctor of this town. No human being knew about this before. The hostile renegade spirit did not stop doing these and other similar wicked things in the foresaid place for three full years until almost every building had been set on fire and burned to the ground. According to Bishop Tietmar of Merseburg in his Chronicon Tietmari, a rather dramatic poltergeist assailed a woman and her children in a farmhouse in Solfeld, a small village about 35 miles east of Hanover in Germany, around the year 1000. It made noises and and an extremely loud crash, and finally the woman called out for her neighbors, who came to her house brandishing swords. The spirit, however, barred entry, and the neighbors found themselves repulsed every time they tried to enter. A priest was eventually sent for, the house cleansed with holy water and blessed, and the spirit departed. A Byzantine chronicle called the Alexiad, a biography of Emperor Alexius I, penned by his daughter, Anna Komnena, sometime around 1148, also records another poltergeist event. Anna records how an elder of the Bogomils, a physician named Basil, was arrested by Emperor Alexius in Constantinople. The Bogomils were a agnostic sect, originating in the Balkan region, but actively per- persecuted by the Byzantines after the annexations of territories formerly belonging to the Bulgarian Empire. Similarly to most Gnostics, they acknowledged both God and Satan, or Satanial as they called him, and believed that the material world was created by the latter rather than the former. Therefore, the world was inherently evil. There is some evidence that the Cathars, wiped out during the Albigensian Crusade, may have been an eastern splinter of the Bogomils. When the monk entered his cell about midnight, stones were automatically thrown, like hail, against his cell, and yet no hand threw them, nor was there any man to be seen stoning this devil's abbot. 
It was probably a burst of anger of Satanial's attendant demons, who were enraged and annoyed because he had betrayed their secrets to the emperor and roused a fierce persecution against their heresy. A man called Periscuotes, who had been appointed guard over that infatuated old man to prevent his having intercourse with others and infecting them with his mischief, swore most solemnly that he had heard the clatter of stones as they were thrown on the ground and on the tiles, and that he had seen the stones coming in successive showers, but had not caught a glimpse anywhere of anyone throwing the stones. This throwing of stones was followed by a sudden earthquake which had shaken the ground, and the tiles of the roof had rattled. Basil was executed around 1118, 30 years before this account was penned, burned in the Hippodrome. He had had actually been arrested in 1110, and during the eight years of his imprisonment, Emperor Alexius had Satanial's arch-satrap, as Cumnina calls him, questioned by the monk Euthymius Zygobineos, who recorded Basil's answers in his book Dogmatici Panoplia, or the Dogmatic Panoply, one of the primary sources on Bogomil beliefs. A passage therein may throw another light on the events of Comnena's chronicle, however, possibly casting doubt on its authenticity. In questioning, Zygobinius recorded that the Bogomils particularly vilified the three holy hierarchs of Eastern Christianity, the same figures referred to as the doctors of the church in Catholicism. They say that a false prophet, however absurd, means Basil, who was great in teaching, and Gregory the star of theology, and John Chrysostom, because they taught the revealed doctrine. I leave out the other absurdities of the sect, which they utter against those saints more than the rest, and which deserve thunder and a chasm and punishment of every sort. Is it any coincidence that in this passage, Zygobinio says that the Bogomils deserve thunder and a chasm, and that then in another account written 30 years later, there is indeed mention of an earth disturbance? Was the event mentioned in the Alexiad a true poltergeist manifestation, a description of an earthquake, P.G. Maxwell Stewart says that the original Greek makes it clear that the stone throwing and the earthquake were simultaneous rather than two separate events. Or is this simply a literary invention meant as a condemnation of the Bogomils as implied by Zygobinios' work? Was it truly connected with Basil, or was its occurrence simply coincidental? There are many unanswered questions about this account. It's interesting to note However, the Patriarch Nicholas III, who presided over the arrest of Basil, died shortly after the trial, and the Emperor Alexius himself also died shortly after Basil's execution. Around 1170, Reginald of Durham wrote the Vita Sancti Godrici, a biography of St. Godric, who was, despite the name, never formally made into a saint. Reginald recounts an instance in his life which which has been mentioned as a possible poltergeist, but like the one that assailed Basil the Bogomil, due to other factors in the, in the account, th- this may not be. While deep in prayer at his home at Finchale Priory in northern England, Godric was assailed by an evil spirit which struck him, doused him in both water and wine, and tore things from the walls. While this all seems typical poltergeist activity, what followed, 
attempting to sway Godric's faith with visions and hallucinations, is not. Guibert de Nogent's Menodier recounts a typical window-rattling poltergeist in a monastery in Léon in 1122. A dying man was deemed unworthy of last rites, and those sitting with him saw the windows begin banging in the walls, and this noise was often repeated, as if many people were coming and going. Claude Lecatus sees this as a case in which a poltergeist acts as a death omen. Sometime in the 1130s, Prévot Nicholas of Le Mans, a prévot is analogous to the English provost and was a sort of magistrate, was also persecuted by a destructive spirit, one which caused a racket and horrifying noises as though it had thrown huge stones against the walls with a crash which shook the roofs, the walls, and the wainscoats, would move dishes and plates from one place to another, would light a candle even though it was nowhere near the fire, and sometimes when food had been put on the table, would scatter bran or ash or soot in order to stop anyone from touching it. Amica, the Prévot Nicholas's wife, got some thread wet ready to be made into cloth. The spirit twisted it and made such a mess of it that all those who saw it could not get over their astonishment at how it had been done. The translation quoted by Claude Lego too clarifies that the thread was wrapped around a stool. The family summoned priests to exorcise the spirit, and they heard something like the voice of a young girl who, drawing sighs from the bottom of her heart, said in a mournful, broken voice that her name was Garnier. She addressed the prévôt. Oh, where have I come from? From what faraway country, through how many storms, dangers, snows, cold, fire, and bad weather have I arrived at this spot? I haven't been given the power to harm anyone, but guard yourselves with the sign of a cross against a troop of evil spirits who have come here to do you injury. Have a mass of the Holy Spirit said for me, and a mass for the dead, and you, my dear sister-in-law, give some clothes to the poor on my behalf. They asked the spirit several more questions on the past and future, and its replies were very much to the point. It even made itself clear on the subject of several people's salvation and damnation. But it was unwilling to take part in argument or discussion with the learned men who were sent to it by the, by the Bishop of Le Mans. This last is well worth noting and makes one suspicious of this apparition. Here we have something approaching modern poltergeist tales. We have stone throwing, speaking, knowledge of things that should be unknowable, the notion that I haven't been given power to harm anyone, and mention of a number of spirits. Several modern poltergeists have also claimed to be accompanied by a number of other spirits, the Bell, notably the Bell Witch and Jeff the Talking Mongoose. The nodding and twisting of the thread conjures images of an activity called lutine, that lutins, which were a sort of goblin or just mischievous spirit in French mythology, engaged in the nodding of horses' manes. Most interesting is that the word genie is used for the spirit. We'll return to this. Gerald of Wales, in his 1191 volume, Itinerarium Cambriae, or Journey Through Wales, gives an account of two poltergeists 
which afflicted Stephen Warriott and William Knott, both, William, both residents of Pembrokeshire. Both spirits threw filth and other things. Maxwell Stewart notes that the word used for filth was sordes, which usually has the implication of being excrement. The not poltergeist used to rip and tear clothing, again with the implication that it tore them while they were still worn, even if the door was barred and locked while the one in the Williot home was known to hold conversations with people and sometimes reproach them for things they had done. Both Stephen Williot and William Knott were both ruined financially after the appearances of the ghosts, which makes you recall the Akimu's sowing of discord, as well as that of the Bingen poltergeist and possibly the dubious Bogomil poltergeist. In both cases, exorcism failed to stop the manifestations. The first mention that clergymen could not dislodge the spirit, of which, I was, of which I'm aware. The account of 13th century stigmatic Christina of Stamon has numerous parallels to cases of young women persecuted by violent poltergeists. For example, Eleanor Zugun in the 1930s. In the 1260s, Christina was targeted by a hostile spirit, which threw excrement, slapped and punched her, ripped and tore her flesh, and tore her and her sister's clothing while they were wearing it. She later developed religious stigmata, a phenomenon in which certain religious personages develop wounds on their body, usually in places where Christ was wounded during the crucifixion. An account of some manifestations at a home in Dagworth, Suffolk, England, around 1190, recorded by Ralph of Cogshall, is a fine example of the confusion between fairy lore and talking poltergeists. An extraordinary spirit made itself felt on many occasions over a long period of time in the house of Lord Osborne of Bradwell. She spoke to the knight's household, imitating the sound made by a one-year-old child's voice, and kept referring to herself as Malkin. She used to claim her mother was staying with her brother in a nearby house, and say that they had found fault with her, and told her off, which was why she was leaving them and taking it upon herself to talk to human beings. She would do and say amazing things, and things which were enough to make people laugh, and a number of times revealed things other people had done and kept secret. At first, the knight's wife and his entire household were terrified by her. After they had become accustomed to what she said and the daft things she did, they began to talk to her with confidence and intimacy, and answer a good many questions. She used to speak English in the Suffolk dialect, but sometimes she would speak Latin and discuss scripture. She could be heard and sensed, but not seen at all, except for on one occasion when a little girl saw her in the likeness of a tiny child wearing a white dress. The spirit was unwilling to agree to her request at all until the girl swore that she would neither touch nor take care of, take hold of her. Then, Malkin told the story of what seems for all the world to be a fairy abduction. She revealed that she had been born in Langham, and when her mother took her into the open field where she and the others reaped the corn, and left her by herself in one part of the field, she was snatched up and carried off by another woman, and had remained with her for seven years already. 
She also said that after seven more, she would come back to live with human beings as she had before, and that she and others wore a hood which made them invisible. The common ground between stories of fairies and certain poltergeist manifestations is an extremely fruitful one. Robert Kirk, writing The Secret Commonwealth, which was in 1691, writes, The invisible whites which haunt houses seem rather to be of, of some of our subterranean inhabitants, which appear so often to men of the second sight, than evil spirits or devils, because, though they throw great stones, pieces of earth and wood at the inhabitants, they hurt them not at all, as if they acted maliciously, like devils at all, but in sport, like buffoons and drolls. The subterranean inhabitants mentioned there are, of course, fairies. And one wonders whether the invisible whites, of course, refer to poltergeists. The story of the Nine Rouge, the Red Dwarf who presages disaster, is a familiar urban legend from T Detroit. However, Thomas Keatley recounts that there was another Nine Rouge. This one, a Luton, which as mentioned before was a specific type of mischievous fairy or goblin, which haunted the coast of Normandy. One of the tales associated with this dwarfish figure seems particularly poltergeistish in nature. A parcel of children were playing on the strand of Palette when Le Petit Home Rouge came by. They began to make game of him, and he instantly commenced pelting them with stones at such a rate that they found it necessary to take refuge in a fishing boat, where, for the space of an hour, as they crouched under the hatches, they heard the shower of stones falling so that they were sure the boat must be buried under them. At length the noises ceased, and when they ventured to peep out, not a stone was to be seen. It has been noted several times how the projectiles thrown by poltergeists often, bizarrely, seemed to make no impact at all at, at the people at whom they were thrown. The Nine Rouges disappearing stones are a similar phenomenon. The same phenomenon is alluded to by Kirk in the above quotation. A Welsh author of the 1100s, Gervais of Tilbury, when writing about the Lutons, mentions that there are three main activities in which they took part, all of which are very interesting from a poltergeist standpoint. First, that they make noises with the wood, stones, and household tools. Second, that exorcism will not put them to flight. And third, that they often speak like humans. In his off-quoted treatise on the undead, Traité sur les apparitions des esprits et sur les vampires, which was written in 1751, Augustine Calmet writes of what he terms elves. It seems here that he refers to the poltergeists and those spirits that reveal things to individuals, those which would have been referred to as genie. The original meaning of genie or genius should not be con confused with the Arabian jinn, though the words are today often used interchangeably. It is doubtful whether the elves, of which so many things are related, are good or bad spirits, for the faith of the church admits nothing between these two kinds of genie. Every genius is good or bad, but as there are in heaven many mansions, as the gospel says, and as there are among the blessed, 
various degrees of glory differing from one another, so may, so may we believe that, in, that there are in hell various degrees of pain and punishment for the damned and the demons. But are they not rather magicians who render themselves invisible and divert themselves in disquieting the living? Why do they attach themselves to certain spots and certain pe- persons rather than to others? Why do they make themselves perceptible only during a certain time, and that sometimes a short space? Ironically, just a few pages before, Calmet speaks of those spirits who, which warn of impending doom as demons. Surely these would qualify as elves and receive the ambivalent judgment above. Mention of genie brings us to the word used in the original word used in French to refer to the Le Mans poltergeist described earlier. This word in Latin is rendered faunus. Both refer to household spirits, those beings of folklore like brownies that inhabit a home and help with the chores. They were seen in various cultures as fairies or ancestral spirits. It was often thought that, should the household spirit become offended, it would become as as destructive as it was formerly helpful. As an example of how those household spirits are similar to the poltergeists, we will examine one in particular the Russian Domovoi, one of a number of spirits connected with the farm of old Russia. The Bannock of the bath of the bathhouse, the Ovinic of the threshing house, the Dvorovois of the stables, and the Polvik of the fields. The Domovoi, however, was, th- was usually thought to be an ancestral spirit, sometimes that of the first person to die in a given home, sometimes the founder of the family. Their home is usually seen as behind the stove. Many poltergeist phenomena center around the stove, such as the throwing of ashes or cinders, and the setting of fires can possibly be thought of in a similar way. Some, such as the Duenda Zaragoza of the 1930s, were actually said to dwell in the stove. Dumavois are more often heard than seen, heard murmuring to themselves, laughing or singing, Another, fo- another favorite activity of many speaking poltergeists, interestingly. They will weep to warn their family of, an in- of a coming death. The Latvian Magus Gares, which is analogous to the Domovoi, was said to pinch people in their sleep. But this action only had meaning if it hurt, in which case it meant that the spirit wanted the family to leave. Interestingly, as Maurice Baring wrote, if you move from one house to another, you must give notice to the goblin and summon him to come with you. If you forget to do this, the goblin will be offended and stay where he is left and show marked hostility to the domovoir bought by, brought by a new tenant. The two goblins will fight, china and furniture will be broken, and this will go on, go on until the first householder comes and invites the goblin to his new house then everything will be all right once more. It is if the Domovois becomes offended then that things become really interesting from the poltergeist perspective. They could become offended through slovenly upkeep of the household, familial strife, or a failure to set aside a portion of supper for the spirit. If offended, they are are termed barabashka or pounder. 
Sometimes this was thought to be a separate spirit, the Kikimora. In 1879, M.D. Conway wrote, Teraphim, Lara's genies, were ancestors of the guardian angels and patron saints of the present day. They were oftenest in the shapes of dogs and cats and aged human ancestors, supposed to keep watch and ward around the house, like the friendly Domovoi respected in Russia. The evil disposition and harmfulness ascribed to them are partly natural, but partly also theological, and due to the difficulty of superseding them with patron saints and angels. Michael Mitterauer notes that the Russian Orthodox Church fought long and hard against the form of domestic ancestor worship typified by the Domovoi and associated household spirits. I contend, then, that the poltergeist and folklore, and particularly, particularly the demonic and devilish nature associated to it, may represent a survival in the modern day of the household spirits of old, made into malignant and evil spirits by the early church as Christianity struggled for its place among the old religions of the world. This likely, in part at least, is why most of the earliest accounts of the poltergeists are to be found in ecclesiastical chronicles and hagiographies. Like St. George's slaying of the dragon, or St. Columba's quelling of the sea monster, they represent in part the triumph of the new and the demonization of the old. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at, forgo- at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next time, this is Andrew, signing off. Oh,